But then I think this is sort of the classic defining metamodern move is, all right, once you've done the deconstructing, then what? You know, we don't live amongst rubble and ruins. We build things. And even if we recognize that the act of building things is incomplete or imperfect or never sort of the absolute, we still build anyway. And that a lot of the meaning that we do occurs in what we build. So I think that metamodernism is characterized by a constructive or reconstructive move. Welcome to Conversations in Process. I'm Jared Morningstar, joining with Jay McDaniel to talk today with Brendan Graham Dempsey, a good friend of mine. Brendan is an author, poet, scholar of religion, and meta-modern trailblazer whose work crosses many domains of religion, spirituality, philosophy, aesthetics, everything you want nowadays all wrapped up together. I met Brendan online through various meta-modern communities that are springing up nowadays and had the pleasure of meeting him and others in this community in person recently at a retreat he hosted at Sky Meadow in Vermont, uh, all about meta-modern spirituality. So I thought it would be wonderful to chat with him today and make some connections between these emerging metamodern sensibilities and the sort of process perspectives that we deal with on this uh, podcast. So welcome, Brendan. Great to have you today. Thank you very much. This is a joy and an honor. Much appreciated. So yeah, I'm looking forward to exploring all these things. I'm really interested in process philosophy, process theology, and evolutionary ways of thinking about religion, spirituality, role of creativity, mentioned aesthetics, et cetera. So yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into all this stuff. Wonderful. So Jay, I know you have some questions. Do you want to jump in or? I'm something of a newcomer to metamodernism, although I like uh, almost everything that I read about it. But I would be interested, Brendan, if you might begin by telling about how you discovered it and what it meant to you then and now. Yeah. All right. Thanks. That's interesting. Um, the way that I got into it is really related to uh, my own sort of spiritual journey and artistic work, which are intricately linked. I sort of experienced kind of a crisis of faith and a existential crisis in my late college years. I'd been studying biblical studies and was going to be pursuing a, a trajectory that might lead me into teaching in a seminary or something very devotional at the time. And then through that study, had an existential crisis by uh, the kind of disconnect between my devotional childhood faith and a lot of the stuff I was reading uh, and learning about you know, historical critical scholarship and that sort of a thing. And so this kind of broke open my existential moorings and uh, felt that kind of falling through the void, et cetera, uh, that Nietzsche talks about in terms of the death of God, uh, which is kind of how I interpreted my experience. And yet uh, I was also very interested in sort of cultural Western intellectual history. And I knew that um, broadly speaking, the West had gone through its own sort of death of God experience kind of collectively. So I set myself the task of basically trying to articulate that in, in poetry. And so I wrote an epic poem uh, about the death of God, or at least begun from that perspective, that angle. And through the course of writing that work, which is, took me about four years, um, it actually became a process of of not just kind of the deconstruction, but then turned into a process of reconstruction. If there's a death of God experience, then what is sort of the rebirth of the transcendent or the sacred or the divine look like on the other side of that? And that became sort of my motivating interest. Um, and I was using art to kind of explore a lot of that material. So as I was finishing that work up, I was thinking about a lot of the sort of pervasive cultural nihilism and the spiritual malaise of the times which seemed to be based on the stuff I was reading about cultural history, also very intricately re related to postmodernism and kind of the postmodern cultural moment that we were sort of in in the late 90s and early 2000s, which itself comes as a offshoot from the modern worldview and epoch, which dealt especially with that death of God transition from itself coming from a traditional worldview, which it uh, eschewed uh, and critiqued. So um, I thought, well, okay, if we're in this postmodern spiritual malaise and we're trying to get ideally, well, at least I was trying to get personally, and I felt like collectively we may be trying, we might be, you know, yearning for something on the other end of that, what comes after postmodernism? And the reason why I think framing it that way became very helpful for me 
was because I felt like it was really important that we didn't just run away from postmodernism. We didn't just backtrack and say, whoops, we've made some kind of terrible mistake here. Let's completely ignore all the insights of postmodern thinkers and kind of do this regressive or, or reactionary move. I felt like whatever was going to take us forward would need to be through that. So it would have to, in some ways, move through nihilism, through deconstruction to something like reconstructive on the other side. So I started looking around for articulations of what might be happening after postmodernism, and I found metamodernism, which was a, a paradigm articulated by some cultural theorists who, as I was reading through it, named a lot of the sensibility that I felt like my work was engaging with, and I hadn't even known that this was sort of a term. So metamodernism articulates we're at a moment that uh, is is characterized by crises that are sort of unavoidable and need to be in some ways dealt with if we're to survive and to flourish on, on the planet. And so a lot of the apathy and some of the, the nihilistic concerns that you saw kind of proliferate in postmodernism didn't really seem to cut it. There needed to be some kind of engagement, some kind of earnest caring that went back into the mix. And yet at the same time, because this is sort of happening after postmodernism, and we've already gotten the sense of what it's like to be cynical and ironic and you know apathetic, whatever this new reconstructive earnest re-engagement is going to look like is going to be tempered by and informed by that sensibility as well. So the metamodern theorists were talking about things like informed naivete or ironic sincerity. So we've experienced irony, we've experienced becoming disillusioned and informed, but how do we re-engage with belief and earnestness and sincerity, not by negating irony or cynicism or deconstruction or awareness or any of that, but somehow simultaneously balancing these things. So these cultural theorists were talking about seeing things appearing in you know, Western cultural production that articulated or, or instantiated the sensibility of re-engagement, hope, earnestness, yet something that was also very aware, very self-aware uh, of all of that, and yet was sort of acting anyway, even in the face of uh, probable inevitable failure. And a lot of these things were already in my work that I'd been writing this, this poem about the death of God and the reconstruction of religious senses of the sacred and whatnot called God. So I thought, wow, this seems to be Whatever this is, this seems to be what I'm interested in and what in the paradigm I'm working in. And this is sometime around 2013. And so just to kind of wrap this up, uh, there's a there's a long story to tell, but uh, basically that was my, how I discovered metamodernism. And then some years later, around 2017, these ideas got picked up and really expanded uh, and made even more robust by different thinkers, maybe the most important in some ways being Hamzi Freinacht, who's sort of a pseudonymous philosopher figure who um, started to mix some of these ideas and the sensibility with Oh, notions of complexity and uh, and and developmental psychology and a bunch of other things and uh, made the whole paradigm a lot more robust. And when I rediscovered it then or re-engaged with it then beyond now sort of just a cultural studies paradigm and really now more like a, a philosophical and a political movement and a, and a kind of cultural zeitgeist that seemed to be having uh, increasing momentum. It just seemed to, again, all of this stuff was falling into place directly with the, the stuff I was engaged with and interested in. Spirituality also being a really important part of all this. Yeah, that would be kind of how I came to it. And, um, you know, there's a lot more to be said about metamodernism, but that's definitely kind of the paradigm that um, I think does the, the most amount of, of work to frame and uh, conceptualize a lot of these uh, ideas that I think uh, we need to be grappling with. And, and Jared, thanks. Uh, Jared, you knew metamodernism before I did, for sure. What connections did you see, uh, if any, with the process tradition? Yeah, big question. Uh, definitely. I, I think the idea of development, certainly, and novelty as, as a central feature is certainly there. I feel like the spirit of it uh, aligns often as well, where I see sort of both these traditions doing something more exploratory, more, more playful, uh, not trying to uh, do a, a classic modern move of finding some first principles that can like perfectly articulate everything, but uh, uh, following different paths of development and see, see what uh, options these afford, what, what novelties emerge. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the biggest connection on, on sort of the broad brush strokes uh, vantage point here. 
Yeah, I, I could also maybe throw in a couple of thoughts there and how I feel like there's a lot of overlap, though. Uh, certainly, I'm with uh, minds much more familiar with a deeper sense of appreciation and, and uh, awareness and familiarity with process thought. But um, to the extent that I've been swimming in some of those shallower waters, I would say that um, for me, some of the overlap is, is as Jerry was saying, there's a developmental uh, and playful and creative element to this. For me, when I was moving through a process of going from sort of a naive faith to a loss of faith to then the process of trying to reconstruct something that could kind of come out on the other side and stronger and and and, and kind of uh, more robust, that whole arc seemed uh, very much like an evolutionary one, that something was in the process of shifting. And that thing that was shifting was my God concept, basically. So um, I, I started to see the ways in which conceptions of God or the divine themselves are not necessarily fixed or eternal, but undergo processes of development and change. And then what excited me about that was, was not just to realize that that occurs, but one, to actually then to be able to sort of map those progressions, almost the way you might chart like the you know, the the, the development of like a, a flower <laughs> or something. And two, to be able to appreciate that we are participatory in the process of that evolution, that we are participatory in the development and, and change and evolution of God concepts through our own consciousness and through our own artistic creativities and the things that we do and put out in the world as mediated by how we think about these things and et cetera. So that, that was um, that came about, to, you know, in my mind towards the end of my artistic project when I was working on that uh, poem called God. And um, that's been a huge motivating factor ever since. And I feel like process thought really it's core. It's core to that way of thinking. Well, I'll say a little word about the process tradition and my encounter with it. Uh, I grew up um, a United Methodist in, in Texas and, and really never had the notion of a highly judgmental authoritarian God for, for, for one reason or another, uh, what I got about God was that God was about love and you could trust God and that was enough. And so uh, when I went to college, you know, I read Nietzsche and, and all these folks and they, they seem to be battling against a kind of authoritarian image of God that I never had. So it, it wasn't really my battle, but I wanted to appreciate it. But my battle was in encountering Buddhism. And I was the English teacher for a Zen Buddhist monk from Japan for one year while in seminary. And I'd been reading a whole lot about Zen and as much as I could get my hands on. And so my great uh, dilemma was, um, should I be a Christian or a Buddhist? And that was as existentially uh, impactful as anything you could imagine. It made me very obnoxious to be around because I, I would want to know, I would want people to help me solve that issue. But that's about the time I discovered the philosophy of Whitehead. And a unique thing about Whitehead's philosophy was that it affirmed so much of what you learned in Buddhism. The evanescence of life, life unfolds in moments, everything is interconnected. All living beings have something like a Buddha nature, value in their own right, worthy of respect and care. Whitehead's philosophy had a way of understanding the ego as both real, but by no means the whole story of what human beings are. It was very compatible with Jung, uh, made good sense of a personal unconscious and a collective unconscious. Um, every moment is indebted to um, a deep past, not just a personal past. And at the same time, Whitehead offered a way of thinking about God that was kind of like the one I grew up with. God wasn't just a force and wasn't just the numinous. Um, God was a, an actual entity. <laughs> That's Whitehead's phrase. An actual living subject embracing the whole universe, affected by the whole universe, moving with the whole universe. Not all powerful, but indeed all loving and continuously present. And there was a side of God in Whitehead that you could say that God feels things. Uh, Whitehead's phrase is God feels the feelings of all living beings, anywhere and everywhere. And those feelings become part of God as they are thus felt. 
There was a side of God in Whitehead where God was non-temporal, eternal. He called it the primordial nature, but it was incomplete. It, it, was, it, it was not fully actual, and God only became actual in feeling the feelings of living beings and awakening, in a way, into something like consciousness. And Whitehead had a very unique way of understanding consciousness. Uh, there's much more to our experience than conscious experience, our conscious experience. So consciousness is a form of experience, but not the only form of experience. Amoebas maybe con- maybe may- will experience, they may or may not have consciousness. Viruses have experience, they may or may not have consciousness. Uh, quarks within the depths of an atom have experience. It may or may not be conscious. So the whole idea that consciousness is the tip of the iceberg and a kind of a, a unique form of experience, very Whiteheadian. So God, too, becomes conscious in God's reception of life. And life is everywhere. Uh, life is not just in human life. As a matter of fact, there's no reason why life should be limited to this planet. So there may well be other forms of life. Hope there are, probably are. But you see, Brendan, given that encounter and why that made sense to me, it offered a way kind of of claiming a personal God of a very unique sort, but, but a God who was not simply the numinous, was in a way more than the numinous, and kind of opened the door for rethinking the numinous as everything and everywhere where wonder is elicited. So, so, so the universe, too, has a numinosity to it. There could be no God and there would still be numinosity. So anyway, we called that in the, in the process world, we called that constructive postmodernism because there was much to the deconstructive postmodern movement that we wanted to actually affirm. The critique of substance ontology, the recognition that language is in part a human construct. There should have been, but was not, more playfulness and irony in our mode. But we did want to affirm aspects of modernity and yet critique other aspects. So what to name this? We called it constructive postmodernism, and that's when I discovered metamodernism. And I thought, well, I, you know, I thought metamodernism is actually a much better phrase. <laughs> but, but it was already taken. So anyway, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, I... I um... I wish I'd discovered Whitehead at an earlier time uh, would have saved me probably a lot of existential angst. But at the same time, existential mm-hmm. angst can also be useful and uh, and and necessary. So, uh, but I, I think everything that you said very much overlaps with the the way that I conceive of this, and I find Whitehead to be really useful in in languaging a lot of this stuff because you know why reinvent the wheel. Maybe one thing that also metamodern thought can help to do is allow a container in which this genre of thought can kind of find a home, right? I mean, Whitehead is sort of one particular philosophical instantiation of this sort of way of, of thinking theologically and philosophically. Uh, but there are there are others as well that are that have a lot of overlap. And so I love the idea of constructive postmodernism. And I would say that that would be a beautiful synonym for a lot of what is happening in, in metamodern spaces. Um, and of course, we're always dealing with heuristics and sort of simpli- simplifications here. So talking about something like postmodernism in some way of like it was this or it was that is, you know, a generalization. But to the degree we can kind of traffic in generalizations, uh, mm-hmm. I do think that there was a highly deconstructive move that characterized postmodern thought, the desire to always tear away the curtain, disillusion people and and sort of... Um, disenchant in some ways uh, with all good intentions as well. Uh, There's sort of enchantment. This is a point that Bruno Bettelheim, I think, made, but enchantment can be used either as a way to um, make the world being in purpose. It can also put cast a spell on people, basically. And so a lot of the ways that power manifests in the world can be a a spell that sometimes we need to wake up from and, and, and need to deconstruct. So I think that there's salutary ways that postmodernism was trying to deconstruct things. But then I think this is sort of the classic defining metamodern move is, all right, once you've done the deconstructing, 
then what? You know, we don't live amongst rubble and ruins. We build things. And even if we recognize that the act of building things is incomplete or imperfect or never sort of the absolute, we still build anyway. And, uh, and that a lot of the meaning that we do occurs in what we build. So I think that metamodernism is characterized by a constructive or reconstructive move. And I, I like constructive postmodernism because it's not just jettisoning postmodernism and the insights, as you say, it's sort of including them, but doing now a kind of constructive move. And I think that that's very much what metamodernism is about. I guess just the last thing I'll say about some of that is that, um, yeah, that's the, as I say, kind of the container or the paradigm that I feel like helps to contextualize a lot of this way of thought. And this reconstructive move is happening in many ways. It's happening at the systems level. How do we make a more sustainable, healthy world for people? It's happening, um, you know, in, in politics and, um, in uh, in permaculture, et cetera. But it's also happening in our minds and how we think about the world and uh, and meaning, which has been largely deconstructed. So how do we re- reconstruct? My emphasis and interest is spirituality. So how do we reconstruct spirituality? How do we rethink God in a way that works and is at home in this post or post-postmodern world that we live in? And I think everything that you just said in that white Hedian frame is the sort of attractor point that I think I'm moving towards. And I think a lot of people in this sort of metamodern context are moving towards in order to rethink theology. You want to jump in, Jared? This is elicit thoughts on your side. Yeah, it's also interesting. I guess I, I see process theology being able to be a a very helpful sort of participant in a broader metamodern spiritual ecosystem where all these different theological, metaphysical traditions, which we might pull in, are are very much viewed as sort of intentionally speculative. And so you're you're not uh, sort of fundamentally moored at any sort of metaphysical point, but you bring in a lot of material and the metaphor you're using, you, you build something uh, with it and, and uh, then you can uh, explore uh, the, uh, the places that, that you build with these different and disparate materials and might as well get creative with it. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a big theme that uh, came to the fore for me, uh, listening to the audiobook of building the cathedral yeah. uh, and drawing on the the Jungian uh, sort of myth making uh, sensibility there. So yeah, maybe you could could say a little bit more about that. About how does this process of of myth making happen? How does it function at levels that are on one hand very individual and uh, kind of deeply personal and incorporating the idiosyncrasies of a of a given individual while, while at the same time not being enclosed in in subjectivity and having some kind of communal or or collective elements to it as well it's a great question the way you frame that question i know that you like it you get the whole thing about the book and what it's what it's uh, trying to explore so that's i that's i appreciate that um in the context of thinking about theology in a developmental, reconstructive, evolutionary unfolding, rather than maybe a more traditional or even modern approach to thinking about these sorts of topics, which is uh, there are certain kind of first principles and fundamental, eternal, changeless kind of cosmic forces or entities or beings that um, you know shall be for all time. Putting that into a situation where we're in a flux. Uh, mode of becoming rather than a static mode of being, I think is sort of the first kind of, this is, this is the, the modality we're operating in. And within that, then the question becomes, well, if the language, and Jay, you mentioned part of the deconstructive move of postmodernism to show sort of in some ways the, uh, the, the, the incompleteness or the, uh, uh, the limited nature of language to really articulate truth, let alone kind of ultimate truth. When we do that kind of deconstructive move and we appreciate that the symbols and the myths and the stories and even the rituals and, and the whole material and conceptual substance of religion and spirituality are metaphorical in some profound way, that they are given to and open to and even invitational to being changed, then 
this really fascinating endeavor or project opens up, uh, provided it's grounded appropriately, which is how do we as individuals then, as creative people, and maybe in a Whiteheadian sense, and participating in the kind of uh, divine creative force of, of, of novelty advancement, how do we put into the world new images, symbols, rituals, this sort of a thing? Because if we take seriously that process framework, this is this is the work of God's coming into being um, of con- you know concrescence of, of concretization in the world, and that is happening through individual beings and individual consciousnesses. So that to me starts to look a lot like a kind of artistic endeavor in which we apply our creativity and our imagination to shape and articulate representations of and new models of new formulations of the divine, the sacred uh, God, and to see that within uh, a broader mission uh, that isn't just sort of a vanity, narcissistic, uh, highly egoic or individualistic sense of, well, you know, God doesn't exist, so I'll just kind of create my own God, but to really ground that in a theological imperative of if God is moving and advancing and growing and changing, and we are participants in that process, why not conceive of the artistic creative life and the endeavor as a theological one, basically? The expression of, I guess, St. Paul, right? You know, we're the, the hands of Christ. What if you put a, a, a paintbrush in that hand uh, and you start kind of doing the M.C. Escher thing of we are both the, the, uh, the creatures of the divine, but also helping to articulate the divine in a way that we are creative about and thus constructive of. And to, at a moment when meaning is increasingly sort of dissolving before our eyes and there's a meaning crisis and confusion around sense-making and what human purpose is and how we should relate to things like the divine, whether they're just old you know, concepts that don't really have any meaning anymore or whether we could reimagine them in a way that could work. In a context like that, it seems to be culturally imperative as well, not just sort of theologically imperative to, to engage in the process of co-creating new conceptions of the sacred. So Building the Cathedral is a book that explores these ideas largely through a Jungian framework, but that's sort of the basic idea. And then to the last point you were mentioning about community, this is sort of, I think, the the bigger issue because an easy critique of something like this would be, well, everyone's just going to have their own individual versions then of ultimate concern and everyone's going to be working with their own symbols. And I'm really excited by the notions of doing this within community as a shared collective enterprise as well. And that's why that's where the image of building the cathedral comes from, of doing something creative and constructive collectively in service of a higher power uh, that is sort of seeking to be drawn out and put into the world by means of people who are instantiating that divine conception helping to fashion the new God concept in some way. So that'd be a a brief way to try to articulate that. And and I'll say one more thing at the risk of rambling, but I feel like this, I wanted to tie this into the last thing we were just talking about is that there's a way of looking at this process, which is totally postmodern and even kind of uh, even nihilistic, potentially you could say, well, you know, we've deconstructed God. So people will just create God or something. And so you can look at it from the human level of just people are creating God doing a social cultural thing. You can also look at it from the perspective of God, (laughs) which is, you know, what does it look like to be the thing that is collectively coming into being by means of human beings in the world? And uh, what sort of agential or participatory or confirming or disconfirming role does God, God's self play in the role of being shaped in certain ways? So that's a theological angle uh, to this whole endeavor that comes in a little bit towards the end, but I feel like is really important, especially in a, in a process theology context where we shouldn't just be thinking of this as postmodern cultural endeavor, but also as a, as a deeply theological endeavor from the perspective of the divine coming into being. Brendan, I'll jump in here. Three ideas in process thought uh, come to mind as you, as you speak. One is how to move from the construction of personal myth to a recognition that we can create myths communally. And in Whitehead's thought, it comes through his understanding of experience. Um, Experience always begins 
with a reception of influences from something other than yourself. And the other can be your own personal past. Uh, that's other than you now. Uh, your, the other can also be a kind of collective unconscious. That's other than you now in a, in a certain way. But it can also be other people with whom you live. And it can also be the hills and rivers and trees and stars. And so every moment of experience begins with an act of reception, not an act of creation, an act of reception of multiple influences. And the creativity lies in weaving those influences into some kind of meaningful whole for the moment at hand. So you might say every moment is the building of a cathedral, but the cathedral begins with reception of other cathedrals or at least of other influences. So that means in the beginning is the listening. If you want to be intentional about this, to create a myth, uh, I have to have a contemplative side. I have to begin not with an act of generation. Here I go. I have to begin with a kind of quietness where I listen to what is presenting itself at any and every level. I'm sure that's what you do as a poet. So this process is very much a poetic process, but it's a human process. The second point is ecology. Uh, and so I just want to accent that maybe uh, the creation of cathedrals, the, the collective cathedrals we need today, you know, who's the collective? It can't just be us humans. So there is an earth community too. And so can we create cathedrals? Can the we who create cathedrals be more than a human we? I don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting question. Is there a kind of collective endeavor on the part of life to be receptive to novelty in our time? Or is it strictly human? Maybe strictly human, but I'm not sure. Uh, and I know the process folks really want to move into a sense that we're part of a larger web of life. That's very important to them. Third idea and the last one, I don't think all things lead to Whitehead or his understanding of God. There's much to the process tradition besides Whitehead, thankfully, thankfully. But it's a matter of a fact that he believed that the primary way in which we experience what he called God was through ideals by which we're beckoned. Truth, goodness, beauty, adventure, peace. He articulates them in a book called Adventures of Ideas. He doesn't even use the word God in that book, by the way. But he says, we find ourselves as humans beckoned by ideals not of our making, which grasp us. And we try to step forward in light of those ideals which grasp us. So in that sense, our creativity begins there too with an act of reception a reception of norms, hopes, dreams, aspirations that are more than us. And that's how he thought God is actually active in the world, not through compulsion, but through invitation, through those collective ideals. So anyway, just those, those come to my mind. Um, I like your image of cathedral building, by the way. You know, Whitehead wrote a book called Religion in the Making, I think he should retitle it Cathedrals in the Making, because all cathedrals are in process, too. Yeah, that that brings up a lot for me. Um, and I think that you're right to bring in uh, the complementary component, which, depending on how you articulate some of these ideas, they can lean too heavily into the active rather than the passive or the, into yeah, the yeah. creative rather than the receptive. So thanks for kind of foregrounding that. There's a beautiful way that I feel like, so I just finished a book, which I think is utterly wonderful and brilliant in many ways. It's called The, the Romance of Reality by Bobby Azarian, and it's going to be coming out at the end of June and super excited about it. I think uh, process folks will see why if they check it out. Um, but he does a great job articulating really well something that I've been really interested in and exploring in various contexts, which is the notion of the unfolding of novelty in the world is going through this process of sort of a groping towards greater and greater consciousness or awareness, which is to say, ultimately, a, a kind of modeling of reality. There's a, a mapping of, of the environment that organisms do 
And that to me, I think, uh, relates a lot to this receptivity that you're talking about. We don't just show up on the scene and then be like, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. We need to be imprinted upon and to be gradually more and more successfully imprinted upon by our environment and and uh, and what we need to be re- receptive to. And that can include the whole scale of, of phenomena. But it's within the context of that imprint process that we are learning about our reality. And then within that reality, we are then shaping that reality to do this sort of looping feedback process where reality shapes us, we shape reality. And it's, I think you're really right to, again, kind of emphasize the receptivity element to that. And I think, again, this is a very, as I understand Whitehead, this is a very Whiteheady notion of sort of this groping towards this greater unfolding of reality, or at least the awareness of the prehension of reality. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say too, was this idea of the ecological, which I think is really important. Now I would situate the kind of cathedral building that I'm talking about largely within the domain of human consciousness. But when you talk about the ecological and more than human uh, consciousness and other than human consciousness or other than human being of all sorts, right? I think that's where you can situate the cathedral in a different way, which is that what is the cathedral that that life itself is building? I would say arguably it's consciousness itself. As life complexifies and grows in depth, which then enhances its, its interiority and its subjectivity, that is that tip of prehension that is human consciousness, right? And so I would say that that is the grand cathedral that all living things are participating in the in the unfolding of. It's then sort of the level at which that reaches a human consciousness that the kind of particular brick of the cathedral then becomes its own cathedral of human conceptions of the divine and the self-reflexive ability to think about this process, to think about self, to think about God. So yeah, th- that's how I would kind of tie in the ecological to this sort of process. It's a, it's a gradation that leads to emergent kinds of cathedral building, I guess you could say, the building of emergent cathedrals. So that I think is important. And then I guess tying into that around the issue of ideals, right? Ideals become more and more pronounced the more our subjectivity deepens, the more our consciousness increases. And so again, I think that when, when considering these uh, notions of ideals, those might be conceived of as being the sort of flower buds on the, the general plant of of sentience and being and, and and living organisms that by reaching a certain level of of complex depth and thus interiority are able to explore these issues at a particular level that maybe not all living beings uh, access at least in the same way so they are not necessarily uniquely human in the sense that I think something like beauty, for example, goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like the good goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. But um, at least the way that uh, like a human consciousness would conceive of these yeah. things and kind of uh, frame them, it's, it's a unique uh, version of that um, and one that we should kind of live into and deepen and further deepen. And, uh, and you know, who knows what's coming down the road, transhuman, not in a kind of technological Silicon Valley sense of the term, but a deepening of the human to an even new, more novel kind of emergence that could completely also revolutionize and further deepen our sense of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and those sorts of ideals. A comment there, and then I'll turn it over to Jared. Your remark gives me new eyes for an idea in Whitehead that you'll understand. He sees God, among other things, as the living whole of the universe but understood as a life of its own. Uh, And and so you can imagine, say, a living cell that has organelles, but you can also imagine the cell has a life of its own, even as as it is made of the organelles too. And so God has a, a life of God's own, even though the whole universe is in a way the body of God. They help make God God. But you can imagine, he called it the consequent nature of God, this side of God. He had a name for it, the consequent nature of God. It, it kind of comes after the events in the world. It, you can imagine it as a process of weaving, and everything that happens gets woven into the ongoing life of God as best God can, creating whatever beauty can be made of it. But so in that sense, you might imagine God as kind of a living cathedral. 
a cathedral in process because there's always something new added. So it's never fully finished, but it's always in process. And then you can imagine the many forms of life, our, our own included, as uh, our little mini cathedrals, so to speak, as contributing to that cathedral in the making. That's a take-home idea for me from what you're saying. Wonderful. Yeah, I really, I really like how those metaphors and ideas uh, come together there. That uh, the God world is this cathedral, this universe we find ourselves in. This cosmos imbued with value is the location for worship and and devotion and and joy and all these other things, reconciliation that we associate with the uh, with the divine. That uh, certainly appeals well to my sort of theophanic Sufi impulses <laughs> to throw yet another uh, thing into the mix here. But yeah, there's there's so much fertile soil between these emerging metamodern ideas and, and sensibilities and and what the the process tradition has been exploring now for for quite some time since since Whitehead and other early figures. So what a what an excellent uh, conversation to to start drawing out some of these uh, points of contact and uh, expanding on them. I think this will be a really lovely uh, conversation to share with with both communities here and uh, hopefully can lead to some cross uh, pollination, some fertilization here and uh, establish some some points of contact that uh, I think will be very fruitful moving forward. Jared, if I could ask. Brendan, uh, one more question, please. So, Brendan, I, I, I'd like for you to write a poem called Can a Metamodernist Be a Methodist Too? And what's really behind that poem or essay is the question of the role of existing particular religious traditions in the birth of a new myth. And sometimes, you know, it, it can sound like metamodernism moves beyond them. And there can be a kind of paternalism there. Oh, you poor little Methodists, you don't yet see <laughs> the crisis we're in and the wisdom that's needed, none of which can come from you. And I really think of people all around the world who have a sense of belonging to a particular tradition. That's their home, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Baha'i, Buddhist, Hindu. So do you see a constructive role? In what, by the way, what should we call them? Pre-modern? Modern? They're here. <laughs> you know, they're here. Yeah, this, sorry. This is a fascinating question and a really important one. Glad you voiced it too. Let me see if I can try to answer that by weaving also all these things together, actually, in, in that metaphor, right? So you mentioned weaving. The word complexity means to weave together, complectare, and that means to braid or to weed. And I think that that weaving is sort of a central metaphor for all of this. What do we do when we weave? We take individual differentiated parts and we bring them together in a way that maintains their own unique identity, but also then connects them into a whole that's greater than the sum of those parts, like a tapestry, um, which requires those parts, but then creates something from them even greater. And to your question, I would say that existing religious traditions, um, and I'll also just throw out, this is kind of the question that our, uh, the conversation I was having with Layman Pascal and John Verveke sort of ended on, which we finish up our conversation about scaling the religion that's not a religion, we'll, we'll pick up is, is this uh, question. I would say that the these religions that exist are, are both wholes and parts, right? Um, and they can be taken as wholes, uh, especially if you're in it, and that is your world, that's your whole. Um, and what you're going to look at some other religion is going to be a different whole, but it's you're going to feel that separation, right? Now, I think what complexification is about is making greater wholes out of more and more parts. And so we can weave together religions into broader wholes, not in the sense that you lose the individual quality of each in the way that you're not destroying the thread by weaving it into a, a tapestry, but that you do get a greater whole by bringing these traditions together. So whether that's different 
Christian denominations into a greater whole, or whether that's different religions, Christianity, Islam, you know, Hinduism, there's a process of complexification that can create greater wholes from its parts. What I would say about your question in terms of, are these folks modern or pre-modern? That really depends, right? So like being a Methodist, you could be a modern Methodist, a post-modern Methodist, a pre-modern Methodist, you could be a meta-modern Methodist, because that kind of signifier is about how you relate to the whole. I would say if you relate to your Methodism as Methodism is the whole, what is outside of it is only, you know, there be dragons. I would say that'd be a very more kind of pre-modern Methodism. If your Methodism is, hey, I'm part of a, a, of a religious tradition, that's, a, that's in some ways a whole, but there are these other holes. And so in some ways we are kind of parts of a, of a broader whole, which is religion and spirituality. That might be more of a modern Methodism. So this sort of process of complexification by thinking about the relationship of parts and holes shifts, and it shifts people's perspective on their own tradition. I think what metamodern, a metamodern Methodist might be is to see the way that you can be all of these things and to find a place for all of those ways of being so that it's not, oh, the only real whole is the metamodernist Methodist whole or something. It's actually that the metamodern angle would be, how do we find a way for all of these holes to feel like holes in making a broader whole so that we can have a traditional method, Methodist and feel, you know, like their whole holds together and we can have a, mo a modern Methodist, right? And so this is, I think, a lot of the goal of metamodern thinking, which is not to try to collapse any particular way of thinking about the truth into one form of truth, but to appreciate the plurality as postmodernism did, but to go a step beyond postmodernism and not just appreciate the plurality that leaves, leads to relativism, but that let that plurality hang together into its own coherent whole so that you get a stack. And then being able to appreciate the whole level of the stack is its own way of appreciating that. So that would, that would be my take on what a metamodern Methodist might be and how these things are related to complexity, weaving, and the whole lot. Do you think there's value in not only feeling part of that larger whole, which includes all wholes, but also recognizing that that larger whole is contained within each whole? Mm. So, you know, it's, it's the hologram idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not just that the part is part of something larger, it's that the something larger is ingredient in each part. Yeah. And I'm not sure what that looks like existentially, but, but I sense that without that, something is lost that's important. Well, I, I would maybe venture that what that kind of fractal holographic whole is, is in this case, we're talking about religion. It's God, but what is God in that sense, right? God is the whole. God's the ultimate whole in some ways, right? Uh, Layman Pascal talks about that numinous sense uh, and the divine as being surplus coherence. It's what it's what takes you from feeling like a whole to being feeling more like a part in a greater whole, and and that that trajectory, that tendency to cohere at an even higher level. And I think that it's interesting to explore the possibility that at every level of this, there is some conception of that whole whole that and not to even say that it's the ultimate whole, but just that there's a kernel of that at all these different levels, which is, I think, when people have numinous experiences, whether that's a traditional or a modern or postmodern, what have you, they're tapping into that sense of, whoa, I was something so much bigger. I, I felt that sense of something profound, sublime, majestic, divine. What is that? Well, it's the sense of being taken even further out uh, from your sense of your whole and and kind of uh, brought into a, a higher level order of whole, a greater uh, sense of coherence. And I think that that exists at all these different levels. So let me press you a little here uh, or express a concern. I think there are some people in some circumstances where what is most important is not to feel part of a larger whole but to feel that they have integrity as a fragment. Mm. I need to kind of say, I'm Jewish. I'm not these other things. Let them be. I'm a pluralist. Let there be many. But let me be Jewish. And let me not contain all the others. And they don't need to contain me. We can be different. 
And so that's an image of plurality that I think is sometimes lost when we too easily fall into, oh, we're part of a greater whole. And, and so I'm, I'm really groping here, you know, what to do with, with that too. I'll call it the value of fragmentariness. I, you know, uh, the recognition of finitude. You know, Eliot's got the metaphor of a heap of broken images in the wasteland. I want to take up for the broken image. <laughs> How to let the image be itself. Any thoughts yeah. on yeah, yeah. Well, I think in, in one way is what you're articulating is, I would say, a religious sensibility from a postmodern sense of the whole, which is let's appreciate plurality, let's appreciate difference, let's not try to elide difference, which is a critique of what a lot of modernism was trying to do, right? So I think that there's a there's a way of looking at that 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 actually, yeah, embraces the fragmentary, the micro-narrative, the, the difference is is all very much part of a way of being in a postmodern, well, and here it becomes the irony, the way of being in a postmodern whole, right? I mean, like that's a way, that's a modality, right? And I think this is where kind of this metamodern thing becomes interesting because we don't want to negate that, speaking as a metamodernist anyway, we want to include that. So how do you include fragmentation in, in, in wholeness? And you, I would arguably you get something like ironic sincerity and these sort of paradoxical, you know, uh, things that are, that can hold fragmentation and wholeness together in a, in a beautiful way. And, and I think that this is also gesturing towards where some of this starts to enter into the sublimely mystical, because mm -hmm. what is a whole that includes its own unwholeness, right? You're starting to, to lead to something non-dual entirely. Yeah, and I, I think that including that is, is really the key. And this, this happens at an individual level too, right? This is both individual and collective. So as an individual, how do I embrace my own fragmentary, unique, different nature? At the same time, how do I also appreciate even kind of my own uh, unifying element, uh, something that, uh, you know, the, the tension between genera generality and particularity is really, I think, one of the fundamental characteristics of the tension between modernism and postmodernism. The modernists always looking for the, the absolute, the generalizable, the total, right, and the postmoderns focusing on the particular and the different and the unique and the marginal. But then it's sort of like, is there a next meta-level move in which we can somehow find ways to relate to both of these if not simultaneously, then at least maybe in an oscillatory way of back and forth. So these are the sorts of questions I would say that metamodernism grapples with in a theological or a philosophical sense. And, and I wonder if Whitehead's notion of the consequent nature of God is kind of a whole in process, um, mm -hmm. perpetually receptive of novelty, C cannot be otherwise, isn't in some way an image of a whole that includes unwholeness, a whole forever in the making, but never closed, never closed. What a enlivening and uh, creative and just wonderful uh, dialogue this has been. I really appreciate mm -hmm. the opportunity to, to, to talk about this and it's been really enriching for me. So thank you both very Same much. Same here, Brendan, it's yeah. great. Take care. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>